We open the scriptures to the book of Isaiah, chapter 7. We'll read the entire chapter together and we focus our attention on verse 14. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that Reason, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up toward Jerusalem to war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told the house of David, saying, Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved, and the heart of his people, as the trees of the wood are moved with the wind. Then said the Lord unto Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, thou and Shear Jashub, thy son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the fuller's field. And say unto him, Take heed, and be quiet. Fear not, neither be faint-hearted, for the two tails of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of reason with Syria and of the son of Remaliah, because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Remaliah have taken evil counsel against thee, saying, Let us go up against Judah and vex it, and let us Make a breach therein for us, and set a king in the midst of it, even the son of Tabiel. Thus saith the Lord God, It shall not stand, neither shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. And within threescore and five years shall Ephraim be broken, that it be not a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria. And the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God, ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse evil, and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse evil and choose the good, the land that thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of both her kings. The Lord shall bring upon thee and upon thy people and upon thy father's house days that have not come, from the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, even the king of Assyria. And it shall come to pass in that day, 
that the Lord shall hiss for the fly that is in the uttermost part of the rivers of Egypt, and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they shall come and shall rest all of them in the desolate valleys, and in the holes of the rocks, and upon all thorns, and upon all bushes. In the same day shall the Lord shave with a razor that is hired, namely by them beyond the river, by the king of Assyria, the head, and the hair of the feet, and it shall also consume the beard. And it shall come to pass in that day that a man shall nourish a young cow and two sheep, and it shall come to pass for the abundance of milk that they shall, that they shall give, he shall eat butter, for butter and honey shall every one eat that is left in the land. And it shall come to pass in that day that every place shall be where there were a thousand vines at a thousand silverlings, it shall even be for briars and thorns. With arrows and with bows shall men come thither, because all the land shall become briars and thorns. And on all hills that shall be digged with the mattock, there shall not come thither the fear of briars and thorns, but it shall be for the sending forth of oxen for the treading of lesser cattle. Here we end the reading of God's word. Verse 14 is the text. Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. It has been said that Christ is the key that unlocks the entire Old Testament scriptures. And that saying is a good saying and is so very true. Sometimes at first glance the Old Testament seems obscure and difficult. Indeed the passage that we just read is somewhat difficult to understand and has many challenging parts to it many of which we will not enter into in the sermon tonight. And yet, we see in this chapter the truth of that saying that Christ is the key that unlocks the whole Old Testament. Indeed, the gold of the Gospel can be found in the veins of the Old Testament in rich abundance just as much as in the New Testament even if at times it seems we have to dig a little more to find it. The whole Bible is all about Christ. It's all about God fulfilling that great promise to save His people from their sins through the gift of His only begotten Son come in the flesh to suffer and to die, to take away our sin, and to rise again to give us life and to establish His kingdom. And we have a nugget of pure gold in this vein of the Old Testament here in Isaiah chapter 7. Among the prophecies of the Old Testament, this one in Isaiah 7 verse 14 is perhaps one of the most well-known and well-loved for New Testament Christians. 
It was loved by God's Old Testament people because it gave them comfort as they looked ahead to the coming of Jesus Christ. But now from our standpoint in covenant history, as we look back on these prophetic words and we see the fullness and the richness of their fulfillment in the birth of Jesus Christ, this is an ancient passage that never ceases to fill us with a sense of mystery, to thrill our hearts with joy and awaken awe at the greatness of our God and the marvel of His saving work. Sending his son, whose ministry for us began with the virgin conception and birth. Here prophesied. Much less familiar to us is the original historical circumstances in which this well-known prophecy was given. Indeed, we know Isaiah 7.14 very well, but Isaiah 7 itself might seem rather obscure to us. This prophecy didn't come out of the blue, but it has a certain historical rootedness. God deals with his people in time and in history. That's the kind of way that God is pleased to work. And God, when he brought his word to the church in the Old Testament, he brought a word that addressed their very real circumstances then and there. And so it is with this prophecy. God gave this word to Isaiah to bring to the kingdom of Judah to meet their needs at that time. To call them to repentance and to call them to faith in God. And so as we look at this well-known prophecy, we're going to look at some of the historical context in which it was given. That helps enrich our understanding of this word of God. But this Word of God, like all the Word of God, though it was given at a certain time and to a certain people in a certain place, addressing certain needs and circumstances, yet nonetheless, the Word of the eternal, everlasting God is a Word that transcends the time and context in which it is given. So that this Word is as relevant to us today as it was to God's people in Judah Centuries and centuries ago. A word about Christ. Who he is. What he came to do. Let's consider Isaiah 7.14. Under the theme, the sign of Messiah's virgin birth. Or the sign of Christ's virgin birth. We're first going to look at the sign itself. That's what the text calls this here. Uh, A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. And this is a sign that God gives. A sign. And then we'll look at the significance of the sign. And then lastly, a certain summons that this sign issues to us. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is the sign that the Lord himself shall give to his people. And this is the sign then that Isaiah brings in the form of his word, in the form of his preaching, his announcement to Ahaz centuries ago in the kingdom of Judah. Let's look at the context here. The circumstances in which this prophecy was given. 
Isaiah was sent by God to bring this word to a man named Ahaz. And Ahaz was the king of the southern kingdom of Judah. Ahaz is the father of good king Hezekiah. And so Ahaz ruled during the later days of the kingdom of Judah when the captivity that was coming was looming upon the horizon. Ahaz was a descendant of the house of David. He was a direct descendant of David because God kept his word that David's sons would sit upon the throne. But Ahaz was nothing like David. There is a disturbing and utter absence of faith and repentance in Ahaz. By this time in Judah's history, the Old Testament church was on a bad trajectory downward. And Ahaz took Judah's wicked departure from their covenant God to new depths. You can read about Ahaz's reign in 2 Kings 16. Where Ahaz's wickedness is described in connection with his worship of the heathen god Molech. Now Ahaz sacrificed his own children to that idol God. It was a time of spiritual darkness, a time of great and abounding wickedness, and it was a time also of political crisis in Judah. And this crisis was precipitated by the rise of a new world power, the power of the kingdom of Assyria, which was beginning to flex its military muscle in the ancient Near East, and was showing its expansionist intentions. And so, Judah's brother to the north, the northern kingdom of Israel, at this time ruled by Pekah, Israel had joined an alliance with Israel's own northern neighbor, the kingdom of Syria, ruled by King Reason. They formed an alliance of mutual defense against the Assyrian threat, and naturally they asked Ahaz in Judah to join this alliance. Ahaz refused, and we know from elsewhere in Scripture that Ahaz preferred to find safety by attempting to cozy up to Assyria. And this would ultimately backfire. Gravely so when Assyria would attack the kingdom of Judah in the days of Ahaz's own son Hezekiah. But from a political perspective you can understand that Israel and Syria could not tolerate a nation friendly to Assyria down to their south. And so as Isaiah 7 reveals... The alliance of Israel and Syria marched to war against Jerusalem and attempted to subjugate the kingdom of Judah and to depose Ahaz and put a puppet king upon the throne of Judah, a man by the name of Tabiel. Those are the circumstances in which this word was given. And so God sends the prophet Isaiah to meet with Ahaz in Jerusalem and to bring a word of command to the king of the Old Testament church at that time, and a word that is especially intended as a word of comfort for God's people during this dark, dangerous, and frightful time. And that message comes out in verses 4 through 9, where through Isaiah, God says to Ahaz and to Judah, Fear not. For the alliance of Syria and Israel and their wicked purposes that they have 
plotted against you will not come to pass. My counsel shall stand. God abides faithful to his people. And that's the thrust of the message that Isaiah brings. God is faithful to his people. God is faithful to his covenant promise. And he will not let the house of David be destroyed. Even though a consummately wicked man is sitting upon the throne of the house of David at this time. See, beneath the surface of this political crisis, there was fierce spiritual warfare going on. Behind Pika and reason stood Satan pursuing his relentless campaign to cut off the line of David and to stop the coming of the king, the Messiah, the Christ. And so Isaiah calls Ahaz to hearken unto this word, to believe and to repent. And he warns the king of Judah against rejecting the word of God. Verse 9, if ye will not believe, surely ye shall not be established. Indeed, that word would be fulfilled. Ultimately, it would be fulfilled when Judah persists in disobedience. And God sends the Babylonians as the rod of his chastening to take the nation into captivity. Believe upon the Lord, Isaiah says. And then, God through Isaiah commands Ahaz, and this is a striking thing in verses 10 and 11, commands Ahaz to ask for a sign. We see here the the amazing condescension of God bowing down to his people in Judah who are weak in faith at this time. He will give a sign that is a visible confirmation of the word that his prophet brings. Verses 10 and 11. Moreover, the Lord spake unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. That's astounding. Where else does God say to someone, ask of me a sign, any sign, one on the earth below or in the depths of the sea or in the skies in the height of heaven and it will be given unto you. We see here God's patience and forbearance towards Judah, towards his people. He speaks this word for the comfort of his people but also to hold wicked Ahaz without excuse. And we see that when we get to Ahaz's reply. Ahaz replies to the word of God as it comes through the mouth of the prophet Isaiah in verse 12. Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And that too is astonishing. The prophet of God says, ask a sign and the God of heaven and earth will give it to you. And Ahaz, the king of Judah says, I will not, I will not ask. And there we see the hardness of this man's heart. Here is unbelief talking. This is what unbelief says when confronted with the word of God. It says, no, I will not and makes excuses. Ahaz was not interested in the God of his father, David. Ahaz has already put his trust in the horses and chariots 
of Assyria. He looks to the arm of the flesh for salvation. He wanted nothing to do with this word of God. Because he wanted nothing to do with the God of his fathers. He would not repent and believe. Even though the word of God is brought to him in the clearest, sharpest way. Here we see the hardness Of the unbelieving heart. And truly nothing can break such a hard heart. But the grace of God. Ahaz refuses out of a hard unbelieving heart. Because ultimately Ahaz was not one of God's children. And the God who works sovereignly. Mercy in whom he will have mercy. And hardens whom he will have. Harden, here, hardens the already hard heart of Ahaz, holding him without excuse, and setting him up in slippery places for the destruction that he so well deserves. I will not ask for a sign, the king says. And he dresses his disobedience in a pious outfit. He says, I I don't want to tempt the Lord. You see, this man knew something of God's word. He is alluding to Deuteronomy 6 verse 16, which says, don't tempt your God. But this is spoken insincerely. Ahaz has no qualms about tempting God. Never mind the fact That to obey God's command and ask for a sign would not be tempting the Lord. You see hypocrisy here. He uses God's word and twists it to justify his own sin. And thus Isaiah speaks in in verse 13. Expressing the grievance of almighty God. With this obstinate man. Hear ye now O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary men. But will ye weary my God also. So that gives us a glimpse. Gives us a glimpse into the condition of the Old Testament church at this time. It's falling apart. Into ruins. The man on the throne. Is a reprobate man. Who wants nothing to do with God. And is so hardened in his unbelief. That he will stare the prophet of God in the face. And blatantly refuse to obey the clear word of God. The mounting political crisis that Judah is in. So much to fear. So much darkness. What grace then. What grace. What wonderful grace of God. That in that context. Such a beautiful word of promise. Is the very next word. That comes from the prophet's mouth. Is the very next word of God to his people. The contrast here should be striking and amazing. Will ye weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself. Ahaz disobeys. 
Ahaz refuses. God would be justified to say, fine, done. No more of my word for you. I will summon the Assyrians to ransack this kingdom and lead these people into captivity. But that's not what God does here. He says, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Ahaz didn't want a sign. Many in Judah didn't want the God who is pleased to give this sign. But for the sake of his people, in his mercy, in his grace, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. And what a sign it is. What a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. You look around and everything is wrong. Everything is broken in Judah. God says, A virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son whose name will be called Emmanuel, God. With us. We see God's grace. His fidelity to his promise. We see his sovereignty here. He is not thwarted by Ahaz's will. We see God's goodness. That even when he is faced with the most obstinate sinner. God unlike us. Doesn't lose his temper. And lash out. Yes God judges Ahaz. God will use this sign and this word given to him for his greater and just condemnation. But we see God's abiding faithfulness and grace. His sovereignty. He is not thwarted. He accomplishes his will regardless of man's will. Indeed, he is sovereign even over the sin and evil that we see perpetrated here by Ahaz. He works all things for good. And he works even through Ahaz's rebellion to bring the blessing of this sign. A sign for God's people. A sign far better and more beautiful than anything Ahaz ever would have asked for. A sign. Which is a sign of deliverance. Sometimes it's asked. How in the world does this sign. Have relevance. To the crisis Judah was in. At the time. Judah is being assaulted. By Syria and Israel. There is the looming threat of Assyria. There will eventually be the bigger threat of Babylon. How does this sign. Address that. And the answer is. The very preaching of Isaiah was a sign. That God had not forsaken his people. God allows or rather gives Isaiah a vision of what is to come. Down the corridors of centuries of time. Isaiah sees what is to come. He sees a virgin with child. He sees a virgin bring forth that child. He sees that child receiving the name Emmanuel. He sees the Christ. Born from the line of David. And if he sees that down the corridors of time and history. That means. These. Firebrands. Of Remaliah's son. And reason of Syria. Will not succeed in destroying the house of David. Nor will the Assyrian threat. Nor will the Babylonians. Nor will anything. Nor will Satan. Nothing. Nothing. No darkness, no matter how deep. No enemies, no matter how vicious. No evil, no matter how awful. No brokenness, 
no matter how broken that is, can stop the fulfillment of the promise of God. Yes, this sign that is given here to Judah at this time is a sign that would not come into the world till centuries later. It's a promise, a prophecy that would not be fulfilled till centuries later. But the very proclamation of it, the very revelation of it is a sign to the church at that time that God is faithful. Faithful in your darkest hour. So we see then how the context here enriches our understanding of this familiar prophecy. Let's look now briefly at the content of that astonishing sign. There there are really two parts contained in verse 14. The sign is this, behold a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. There's the first part and the second part of the sign is this, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This You might say is the sign of all signs. It's the wonder of all wonders. It awakens awe. It defies human comprehension. God shall cause a virgin to bear a son. And not just any son. But this son shall be his son. This son shall be the promised one. This son shall be the Savior King. Ahaz had no interest in this sign. And unbelief throughout the ages has had little interest in it either. In fact, proud unbelief has scoffed at the very thought of this truth of the Bible. A virgin shall conceive. That sounds ridiculous. Everybody knows the biological impossibility of such a thing. And so, unbelief scoffs. And that scoffing unbelief puts pressure upon the church. Pressure that God's people must resist. Because it's very easy to bend over under that pressure. And to try to find a way out. And to try to explain away this beautiful word of God. To make it fit with the spirit of the age. And sadly, that is done. Too often it is done. For example, some have pointed out the Hebrew word for virgin here in our text can also be translated young woman. And that's true. And the argument that they make is, well, the text really says a young woman shall conceive and bring forth a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. But we can all readily see the impossibility of that translation. Or that interpretation of the text. What's decisive is not The fact that the Hebrew word can be translated either way. What's decisive is the clear fact that Isaiah is saying this is going to be a sign. This is going to be something extraordinary that stands out. A child being born in the normal way doesn't stick out at all. But a virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son. Besides, though the Hebrew word here can be translated young woman, the primary meaning of the word is an unmarried woman of marriageable age, a virgin. 
And so there's absolutely no credibility to the interpretation of this text that would deny the prophecy of the virgin birth of our Lord. Moreover, Scripture interprets Scripture. And we see how the New Testament interprets this passage. Think of the angel's words to Joseph in Matthew 1. Where the angel says to Joseph that he should not fear to take Mary to him to be his wife. For the child conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And then Matthew, under inspiration of the Spirit, makes these comments in verses 22 and 23. Now all this was done that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of by the Lord, by the prophet, saying, and now Matthew quotes our text, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted is God with us. People of God, be not ashamed to confess the truth of the virgin birth. This is the wonder of God and it is marvelous in our eyes. Let unbelief scoff. Let it scoff like Ahaz scoffed. It is a small thing. For the God who made heaven and earth by the word of his power. It is a small thing for the God who called the worlds into being out of nothing. It is a small thing for him. To cause a virgin to conceive and bring forth a son. But what is small for God is also very great, marvelous, miraculous. In our eyes, singularly unique and amazing. And that by God's design. How fitting that God's own Son should come in this way. That the Savior should come in this way. In a way unheard of from the foundation of the world. In a way impossible from every creaturely point of view. That the Savior should be conceived without a human father and yet Born as normal from a human mother. That in this way he should take upon himself our flesh. And become man. For us poor sinners in our salvation. Isaiah was given a glimpse of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And our text is a snippet of the same gospel that the angels would proclaim centuries later outside of Bethlehem when they would announce to the shepherds that this day in the city of David is born unto you a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's the sign. An amazing sign. An unmistakable sign. Pointing to the fulfillment of God's promise. The second part of the sign is the last part of the verse. And shall call his name Emmanuel. Not only will the coming of the Christ be through a miraculous birth. But the son who is born of the virgin 
shall bear a special name unlike any other. A name that only God can give. And here in Isaiah 7 verse 14, we see God giving one of the names, one of the beautiful names of His Son in the flesh, giving Him that name centuries before He comes into the world. A revelatory name of incomparable richness. Emmanuel. God gave our Savior His personal name, Jesus. He gave that name with purpose. Because that name, Jehovah saves. Jehovah's salvation reveals who He is and what He has come to do. And so it is with this name, Emmanuel. God with us. It's those Hebrew words pushed together into one. Into one beautiful name. Emmanuel. God with us. And thus the prophecy reveals that the birth of this child, this miraculous birth of a child from a virgin, through this birth, God will come to His people. Through the birth of this child, God will become uniquely present with His people in a way far greater and far richer than ever before. The virgin shall conceive and the virgin shall bring forth God with us. Another interesting aspect of the text is that the text says that the mother, Mary, shall call his name Emmanuel. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. We might ask or we might wonder, when did Mary call Jesus Emmanuel? And there's a couple possible answers to that question. One possible answer is that when she gave him the name Jesus, that fulfilled this text. Because ultimately the name Jesus and the name Emmanuel meet and are much the same. Jesus is Jehovah's salvation. He is Emmanuel, God with us. God with us through His saving work. And so when Jesus was given that name, Jesus, He was called Emmanuel. Another possibility, not recorded in Scripture, but conceivable. Joseph and Mary knew the Scriptures. You can imagine them reflecting upon this passage after the birth of of Jesus and with wonder and awe and praise referring to that child given as the Emmanuel of God this is the sign the glorious sign of the text we've seen something of its significance already you can't Study the sign without getting into the significance. But let's now focus our attention a little more closely on the significance of this most miraculous of signs. The virgin conception and birth of the promised Christ. What is its abiding significance throughout the ages? Significance for the people the prophet's own day, and significance for us. 
Signs function as visible words. They teach us something. And they confirm God's word. So it is with this sign. The sign of the virgin conception and the virgin birth teaches us something. It has a gospel message. The first significance of this sign is that it proclaims To use the words of Jonah. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord. Jonah cried those words from the belly of the whale. And this sign that God gave to Judah. In the belly of the darkness of that day. This sign proclaims. Salvation is of the Lord. And in our day and age. In the darkness that we face. In the brokenness and the wrong all around. That makes us yearn for the coming of Christ again. This sign in the scriptures sounds forth the same message to us. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord and of his power. Sign of the virgin birth of Christ testifies that salvation is by the power of God. You ask, why was Christ, why was the Savior born of a virgin? This is by divine design. That hereby, the will and the agency and the efforts of humankind might be completely excluded from the coming of the Savior. The Christ does not come because man wants Him to come. The Christ does not come through the diligent efforts of human beings. Fallen humanity. This sign testifies. Fallen humanity cannot bring forth its own Savior. The coming of the Savior is a wonder of God's grace. And the very beginning. His coming into the world. His virgin conception and birth. Testifies to that reality. It is only by the power of God. Jesus comes into the world. Through something that is utterly impossible. Virgin conception and birth. It is only the power of God. That brings him. The power of God. That brings his promise to fulfillment. And that shows us. That the God who sends. The savior. Is mighty to save. And that the savior. Conceived and born of the virgin. Is mighty to save. The text emphasizes that in a a subtle way. In the name of God that is used in verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself. And you'll notice Lord here is Lord not in all capitals. In our King James Version. Lord in all capitals refers to Jehovah. The name I am that I am. But Lord in lowercase in the Old Testament, refers to the Hebrew name Almighty, or Almighty Lord. It's a name that stresses the power of God. The power of God is being emphasized here. The Almighty gives this sign. The Almighty causes His Son to be born of a virgin, to come into our flesh. By the virgin conception and birth. And that same almighty power that we, dis- that we see displayed in the coming of the Savior. Is the almighty power that will characterize the Savior's life 
ministry, and work. The almighty power of God that accomplishes the impossible. What a comfort that is. This is a comforting sign. Ever is the power of God a comfort to His people. We face principalities and powers that are far beyond us. We wrestle not against flesh and blood. We are impotent of ourselves. But our impotence is ever overcome by God's omnipotence. He is mighty to save. And no matter how bad things get in this world. No matter how bad things might get in our lives. No matter how bad things might get in what is called church. It never takes away from the power of God to save. And when you're discouraged and when you're downcast. Look to the sign. The sign of this text. The God who made a virgin to conceive and bring forth His Son into the world for our salvation. Is anything beyond Him? Nothing. Nothing. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Lord's power. And another part of this is salvation is of the Lord's wisdom. What wisdom, what wisdom do we see here in the Lord's way? We marvel at God's wisdom in the creation. But what wisdom in His framing, His devising, His planning, His executing the way of salvation. What wisdom went into this plan that the only begotten Son would assume our flesh and become man. To suffer and die for our sins. This is the greatest wisdom. Wisdom beyond our comprehension. What wisdom of God in preparing this way of salvation. The sign of the virgin birth is a sign testifying to us the unsearchable riches of God's wisdom and knowledge. And that too is for our comfort. Ever is the wisdom of God for the comfort of His people. Trust Him. The God who brought forth His Son from the Virgin Mary for your salvation. Is there any problem of yours or mine that is beyond Him? Is there any problem that we have that is too much for Him to figure out and lead us through? No. Behold His wisdom. And with that wisdom, He leads and guides each and and every one of His people. Salvation is of the Lord, of the Lord's power, of the Lord's wisdom, of the Lord's grace, of His grace. Here we bring in the historical context again. How gracious was the gift of this sign How wretchedly unfaithful was the house of David at this time. How wretchedly unfaithful were the people of Judah at this time. The visible manifestation of the church of that day. 
Indeed, Judah, from many points of view, was sick from head to toe. And yet this sign is graciously given to the wretchedly unfaithful, testifying that God is faithful, steadfastly faithful, even when His people are not. He gives here a sign of the greatest gift of grace that's coming. And not even Judah's wretched unfaithfulness will stop it from coming. Salvation is of the Lord. And the virgin conception and birth of the Christ testifies to that. It is a sign of purest, undeserved favor. Revealing the heart of God. Now also the significance of the sign in the text. Is that it says something about the nature and the goal of God's salvation. Emmanuel. We come back to that name. Emmanuel. Jesus is Emmanuel. Jehovah's salvation is God with us. And that points out to us the purpose, the goal of salvation. Jehovah's salvation has this as its aim. God with us. Fellowship. Here we have the beautiful preposition of the covenant with. God wills to be with us. Though we have separated ourselves from Him by our sin. And made ourselves worthy to be exiled from His presence forever. He seeks and saves the lost. And His seeking and saving of the lost is through His coming in our flesh. The Son of God coming in our flesh. Jesus Christ. The virgin birth. Christ. His coming. His incarnation. Puts the with in the name Emmanuel. Puts the with in God with us. Because when Christ comes in the flesh. He draws close to us in the most intimate way. He draws as near to us as can possibly be. He becomes man. One of us. Not only to suffer for us. Yes, that is an important purpose of the incarnation. Jesus assumes our flesh. Because in our flesh he must pay for our sins. His death in our flesh opens the way into God's inner sanctuary. Opens the way into the innermost and richest and most intimate fellowship with the living God. But he did not assume our flesh to abandon it in the grave after he had died in it. He assumed our flesh to bring it through the grave. To fill it with resurrection life. To exalt it. To abide in our flesh forever as Emmanuel God with us. Jesus assumed our flesh to be the temple. To be the temple of God. Through whom the covenant is fulfilled. I will be your God. You will be my people. I will dwell with you. And you shall dwell with me. The sign of the virgin birth of Christ. Is a sign testifying to us. That in Christ. The tabernacle of God. Is with man. He has come. 
to rescue us that he might abide with us. How significant a sign. Given the significance of this sign, there is a summons. There's a summons here. A calling. The summons is implied in the text. The summons is not to ask God for a sign. The sign has been given. But the summons is to behold. Behold. Therefore the Lord Himself shall give you a sign. Behold. And implied in behold is also believe and bow down. Behold, believe and bow before this God and before His Christ. Behold. Look closely. Fix your attention on this. This word of God, this sign, it's important. So very important that it deserves your undivided attention. That's the sense of the word behold. Whenever that word is used in the scriptures, it's meant to rivet our attention on something. Something that should grab our attention and grip our attention. Because of how important it is and how significant it is for us. So it is here. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. By the grace of God, hopefully that's what we've done tonight as we've studied this word. We've beheld. We've pondered the meaning of these words of God. And the effect of that beholding, let it be the strengthening of our faith. Believe. Believe in this Christ. And believing, embrace His Word and let it rule your life. Trust Him. Rest and rely upon Him. And in all tribulations, in the darkness, here below, look unto the light. And with uplifted head, look to your Redeemer. With those spiritual arms of faith, cling to Him. And draw your strength from Him. When you are weak. Behold. Believe. And bow. Bend the knee. The sign of the virgin birth. Should bring us to our knees in worship. Should lead us to join the shepherds. And join the wise men on their knees. Whenever we hear the gospel story. Wonder. God's salvation. May this text bring us to our knees. In that humble, joyful worship. So that we can get up again. And get back to our callings. Our life. Our work. Bearing the burdens and the hardships of this life. Strengthened. We retire to our beds to sleep each night to be refreshed in the body. When we bend our knees and bow before God and adore Him. And take in His word with a believing faith. It's on our knees before Him that we're strengthened to get back up. To go forth. To fight the good fight of faith spiritually tomorrow and in the days ahead. To live as a Christian. 
Behold, beloved, your God and your Savior. Believe in him. Bow before him. Go forward. His joy. His peace. Amen. Heavenly Father, we thank thee for this beautiful ancient word. Word of prophecy, which in the fullness of time has been fulfilled. And now upon which we look back, we stand in awe of what thou hast done. Press upon our hearts the significance of the sign of the virgin birth of our Savior. May we be comforted by thy power, thy wisdom, and thy grace therein displayed. And may we find our joy and our peace in fellowship with thee through Emmanuel, our Savior. Be with us and strengthen us in all our afflictions and in our earthly labors and in our earthly way. Use thy word tonight to strengthen each of us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.